0: Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms, from the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries. Anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Elise Ray Helford, author of What Price Hollywood? Gender and Sex in the Films of George Cukor, published by the University Press of Kentucky. June 2020. Thank you for speaking with me.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: So first, how did you end up studying this subject and writing a book on it?
1: That's probably the most fun aspect of the whole project. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was a teenager, I used to watch QCORS films, particularly uh just a couple of them, The Philadelphia Story and the film he directed before that. Philadelphia Story is 1940, and before that was Holiday, mm-hmm. which is 1938, and he worked with Katharine Hepburn and Cary Grant on both, and I kind of went through this period of loving Hepburn and Grant and loving them together. They also did uh, the film Bringing Up Baby, that a lot of people know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was not Q-core directing, but uh, I used to watch it with a teenage friend of mine, and we had kind of this pattern of if we could get hold of a movie or tape it on VHS, we would kind of watch films over and over. Mm-hmm. And I always loved it. And years and years later, I'm teaching and I get an invitation to contribute to a journal that wanted to talk about, was it on bisexuality? Mm-hmm. And I thought about the way Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, there's always a third person in their films that gets in their way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes a triangle, a man or a woman, and the attraction seems to go throughout the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, that The two men seem to have a connection, or the two women seem to have a connection in addition to the Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had also done a 1935 film called Sylvia Scarlet together that was also directed by Cukor, and that one has Catherine Hepburn in drag for the entire movie. Mm-hmm. So these things... I just, I enjoyed them, and writing can be like, uh, in some ways, solving a puzzle. Uh, it's also rhetoric in that you are trying to make an argument that's persuasive by using the evidence before you. And so that article got published, uh, and then I just started thinking, what else interests me about Core? A lot of my colleagues identify with a specific author or artist or filmmaker and that's never been the case for me Mm -hmm. i wrote my dissertation on black feminist science fiction writer octavia butler Mm -hmm. before she had become really famous and by the time i was done with my dissertation which is also like writing a book i was just sick of it and now i really am done writing about Mm q uh after this book but i wrote another article and then i started saying well could i put these together as a book and so rather than a biography. detailed overview of who QCOR is through his films. I started thinking about how much gender and sexuality play a role in his life and in his films. Mm -hmm. And I started writing little case studies where you take a group of, say, three films. And I did the bisexuality article and I did one on drag because several, like five or six of his films have women in drag in them. And I started thinking about What's that about? Why is he doing that? And as Hollywood's most successful gay studio director, Mm -hmm. um, I think he was invested in playing with gender a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I also think he was forced into that direction by being called a woman's director, which on a positive angle means he can work with difficult women. Mm -hmm. Difficult at that time really just means independent. Mm -hmm. Um, But Catherine Hepburn... Uh, he worked with uh, Joan Crawford on two films. He worked with Marilyn Monroe on a couple of films, one of them. She died before they finished it, but he was working on it with her. Mm-hmm. And because he's seen as somebody who can work with these independent women, uh, that's a good thing. But woman's director is also a homophobic slur. Mm-hmm. Because he's gay, he's only fit to work with women, even mm-hmm. though he did get a number of Men Academy Awards mm-hmm. in his films. He helped them to get them. So I played around with these case studies and eventually they pulled together to create something that felt like a book.
0: Mm. Just a side thought, um, when you mention, you know, a director able to work with women, it also makes me wonder um, about directors trying to hit on their actresses, you know, and making, making problems that way, whereas he wouldn't have you know, so no. it's just kind of a side thought. I don't know if you have any comments or
1: no, I do that. I mean, that's, that's very true. They knew they could trust him. Uh, he worked on, I believe 10 films with Catherine Hepburn and she knew she could trust him. He guided her career. He gave her her first big hit in 1932 opposite John Barrymore mm-hmm. um, in a bill of divorcement. And he liked her independence and even to some extent, her effectiveness, he tried to help her tone it down, but he also, He was an Anglophile. He really loved the British, and so he liked her kind of fakey New England kind of accent that a lot of actors used Mm -hmm. back then um, Mm. that made them a little bit haughty. And I think he liked that because he came from this very middle-class Jewish-American Lower East Side family, Mm. and he liked classy people. (laughs) He hung out a lot with people like... Olivier, Lawrence Olivier, and Vivian Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I think they knew they could trust him. The problem was he couldn't always trust the studio. I think one of the most famous examples is that he was the original director for Gone with the Wind, mm-hmm. and he ended up being let go from the film, fired, and it cost him a great deal of pain because, in part, Clark Gable claimed he was not a good director for men and he was throwing the film to Vivian Lee. <laughs> Uh, to Scarlett, but it's Scarlett's film.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, I have my own problems with it, but some of his scenes are still in the film, like the scene where she dances in her widow's gown with Rhett Butler. Uh, he directed that scene, and so some of them are still in the final print, mm. but so he had that kind of double-edged situation. Now, the other point that you bring up, that, that you implicitly bring up there that really interests me is some of the men he worked with were homophobic and were afraid he'd make a pass at them. Uh, if, you, if you think about homophobic stereotypes, mm. it's the idea that gay men are attracted to any man as opposed to <laughs> how we all are, right? Yeah. We're just attracted to the people we're attracted to. Yeah. And so there are a couple of anecdotes where an actor would not want to go to his house to run lines because he was afraid mm. would make a pass at him, which is sickening. And one actor, Stuart Granger, who's this kind of macho British actor, was in uh, Cucor's film. Bawani Junction, which was this big Indian epic about the partition of India and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And Stuart Granger plays this British Army officer. And Cukor really got involved with his actors, and he liked to, if they weren't getting it, he would actually do the part and show them what he wanted. He'd do line readings, and many directors stay away from that. But he really loved working with actors, mm-hmm. which is why, in my opinion, even when his films are bad, there are good scenes in them. Mm. Um, because he did this intensive work with actors, and Stuart Granger just said, I'm not going to let some little homosexual Jew tell me how to act. Mm. So I think it was, there were paranoias about that mm-hmm. rather than that he make a pass at the women. But yes, I do think women loved working with him Audrey Hepburn, Judy Holliday, uh, a lot of. Um, famous actresses have a lot of good things to say about Cor and how wonderful he is to work with. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think Cary Grant worked well with him. Jimmy Stewart worked well with him. He got Ronald Coleman an Academy Award Mm -hmm. in a role where he has to play Othello on stage in part of the film. Mm -hmm. And people weren't sure Ronald Coleman had the punch in him to play this character. And Cor really helped him and he won an Academy Award. So Mm -hmm. it's that it's the best and the worst of Hollywood, kind of wrapped up.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. You know, normally someone like Cucor would be totally shunned, but the fact that he could create success and money, you yeah, know, he he was allowed to stay in. Which, like, use you, uh, you know, to use the double-edged sword metaphor, you know, you can always make it in Hollywood if you can generate the cash. You know, it's yes. a meritocracy in a weird way.
1: Absolutely. And ultimately, the thing that is, you know, least compelling to me personally is the degree to which he was willing to do what the studios told him to do. Uh, he did turn down some pictures. That's not that he said no that he never said no and he did early on try to take some risks like that sylvia scarlet film but it was such a bomb that he just said okay don't be so daring just do what they tell you to do uh and and be successful and so although he felt pigeonholed there's this wonderful quote that i used as an epigraph in the front of the book heaven knows everyone has his limitations but why make them any narrower than they are hmm. and he did feel a bit of that pinch. But Hollywood at the time, I mean, it was an open secret. Everybody knew he was gay. That's not a problem. As you said, that's not a problem if you're turning out good product. And for the most part, he did. And he did for much of his life. So he had tons of pictures in the you know 30s and 40s. But he was able, even able, as the studio system crumbled and beyond, to do films in the 50s, in the 60s, uh, and his last film was 1981, uh, like a year and a half before he died. Mm-hmm. So he made films over a 50-year period in Hollywood, which is quite an accomplishment.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Elise Ray Halford, author of What Price Hollywood? You can find more information on her work at EliseHalford.com. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my Facebook page, Full Contact Nerd, to find links to interesting, nerd-focused videos created by others. Please go to my Twitter page, at Full Contact Nerd, for links to nerd news and academic articles. Please check out my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, for cosplay and convention photos. Please check out my YouTube channel, Full Contact Nerd, for interview videos I've made. You can also sign up for my newsletter at chrisalvarez.com and fullcontactnerd.com. In the newsletter, I post video and news links, as well as regular updates on new nerd-friendly books being published. Remember, my name Chris does not have an H, C-R-I-S. If you're interested in other kinds of history, such as military history, or film, TV, books, and comic books history, including science fiction, fantasy, and horror themes, or the history of outer space exploration, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. Were there any uh, studio heads or executives that really liked him, like on a personal level?
1: Well... (laughs) he didn't have a lot of close friends period. Mm. Uh, one of the ways in which you stay safe is he never really did have a partner, um, which is kind of sad. Mm. Uh, it's typical in some ways of the era. Uh, he was known for having flings and in later years, you hear stories of him, you know, giving bit parts to young, handsome men that he would sleep with in order for them to get a part. Mm. Uh, And so in life, he never really had a partner. His closest friends were uh, Catherine Hepburn. uh, And Hepburn, when she was having her relationship with Spencer Tracy, Mm -hmm. who was married, but they didn't get a divorce because of uh, Catholicism. Mm -hmm. They just weren't willing to divorce. So uh, he gave them his pool house and they would stay at his pool house. And so he had people like that, particularly Hepburn, um, that he was close to uh as far as as a director i think there was much more of a professional relationship i haven't read a lot about closeness there were a few like pandro berman who just after that sylvia scarlet escapade you know exploit uh he never wanted to work with him again uh and i know that david o selznick uh looked a lot like king people would confuse them and there's a guy uh there's also a uh I forgot his first name, Zukor, and people would confuse them because of the name, and he hated all of that. Um, I would deepen it with a little reference to Jewishness. The moguls, the Hollywood studio moguls, the big producers of the five main studios, were all Jewish-American and had worked their way up from poverty. They all lived within 500 or less miles of each other in the old country. They didn't know each other, but they came over all trying to make money. Mm-hmm. And they had been peddlers or fur salesmen or they worked uh, with department store ordering or things like that. So they were – film for them was another thing to sell. Mm-hmm. So yes. it's not till 1962 and the miracle decision that film is free from first for First Amendment rights deemed an art not just a product, but for them it was a product Mm. to entertain and to make money. And so they were very money-oriented. I think Kukor was too, but he was not from that same group. Those are Ostjuden, or Eastern European Jews. Mm. And Kukor was from Western Europe. Uh, His parents were Hungarian, so more in the area of like uh, Germany, Hungary, Austria those Jews had come over in much smaller numbers earlier mm-hmm. although Cukor's parents came bef- yeah they came before the start of the 20th century and the others came around the tw- start of the 20th century and so they had very different attitudes Kukor was more aligned with in terms of what he did I think with the European directors who are the emigres like Billy Wilder and Fred Cinnamon, who did High Noon, um, and Ulmer and Sjadmak and all these people, Fritz Lang, that all came from that from Germany in that area fleeing mm-hmm. Hitler. And I think he saw the world a little more the way they did, where they had more female main stars and that kind of thing. And so I just don't think he related well to their fast-talking bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, no, I don't think he was close to them. I think the people he liked best were erudite and what he wanted to be, which was successful in what he did, but seen as, uh, I don't know, a combination of classy and similarly telling ribald jokes and using slurs and things like that. He even Mm. used gay and Jewish slurs um, Mm. in jokes and things like that. So he was kind of multiple people, you know, a different self to different people, but I don't think he was close to very many.
0: Hmm. Did the work he did have an influence on other directors you know did they pick up anything that he uh i know you said he wasn't he stopped being daring but you know obviously he he had an effect um
1: yeah i you don't hear very many young directors say oh it was all about q corps for me Mm -hmm. because he's one of those directors that people call like an invisible hand he's not an auteur uh, meaning like an artist, a singular author of his films. So someone like Orson Welles, he doesn't write, direct, produce, or Billy Wilder in some of his later films. He's not the kind of person, or Hitchcock. You don't say, ah, that's a cue core, all all that often. Uh, sometimes you can, in terms of kind of he's known for those, whatever drawing room comedies, romantic comedies, dramas, melodramas. Uh, he mostly stayed within that range, but you know, I mean, he got his Academy Award for My Fair Lady, which is a musical. Mm-hmm. Even though he wasn't a big fan of musicals, he directed several of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, the things that he's most known for, tend to be things that a scholar would be interested in or historian more than other young directors. So that he, he's famous. He did some of the earliest like long tracking shots up staircases and things like that. Mm. And he also is famous for the long take. And the long take just means you don't turn the camera off in a scene. Mm. You take it, you do it in one take. And he's famous for that, and I link that in part with that role of actor's director where he's very invested in getting the best he can get out of a performer. So there are some scenes in his 1962 version of A Star is Born with Judy Garland and James Mason, where she's breaking down and they don't cut. Mm. They just let her go through the scene. And he was so you could say he's known for that, but mm. <laughs> he's not known for it in the way Hitchcock is known for focusing on the gaze peepholes like in rear window and psycho or he's not he doesn't have a style all his own. Mm-hmm. Um Some of the other critics call him like the master of entertainment or a master of ceremonies. He made things harmonious and engaging on the set Mm. and let people do their thing. So he gets somebody to handle set design and color. Um, He would direct some shots, but not the way some directors would, where they are in control of every single shot in the film. Mm. And he never wrote or rewrote. He occasionally would add a scene. But I mostly found him interesting in the ways in which he adapted. That's why we decided to title the book, after much discussion of many other titles, Hmm. um, What Price Hollywood, because that's the name of an early film he directed, which is a predecessor to A Star is Born, Hmm. Um, but not not a musical. And What Price Hollywood? What does it cost for him to become who he became in Hollywood? And what compromises did he make? And yet... What interesting things did he still do, particularly in smaller or subtle ways, dealing with gender and sex? And I also deal with uh, race and ethnicity, particularly some focus on where he gets ethnicity and Jewishness into his films, because he certainly was not any better than any other director of his day, and probably worse than some in dealing with things like race. Um, And as far as class, he loved the wealthy. Hmm. So <laughs> his films either like you know in Philadelphia' story he probably practically celebrates the wealthy and when he was interviewed in the 70s he said uh, you know I love the wealthy, don't you hmm. like they're admirable I feel like uh, he lived life on its surface too much hmm. but I don't think he would like my interpretation of him right so you mean, I was glad to publish the book long after his death.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, did he ever do work on with the stage?
1: Yeah, before he went to Hollywood. He, he went to Hollywood as a voice coach, which is interesting in terms of his ambition to be more. He loved the British and the Swedish, and to be more classy. uh, So he was a voice coach. Um, But he did love the theater, and he worked in New York theater. He did stage management and liked directing and wanted to work in theater. Uh, And many of his films, many of them have a theatrical focus. Hmm. So either you've got Films that were big Broadway hits as plays like Philadelphia Story and Born Yesterday Mm -hmm. that were huge stage hits that he then directed. And so that's another thing he's known for is he could adapt stage plays for film. Mm -hmm. And then also he has theatricality in his films. So an obvious example would be something like a film called Heller in Pink Tights which is based on a Louis L'Amour Western novel, and it's about a theatrical troupe in the Old West, and it stars Sophia Loren in a giant blonde platinum wig. It's a crazy <laughs> film. Uh, but it's about this, he said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do a film about the West. I'm going to do a film about a theatrical troupe in the West. So that's his Western. Mm-hmm. Um, and other films, uh, like A Star is Born, where it's about performers. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm curious if he ever was, uh, expressed any sort of frustration or anger about having to tamp down, you know, some of what he wanted to do, or did he just get along with, with Hollywood?
1: Getting along was definitely his biggest goal, uh, succeeding, proving himself. Mm -hmm. Um, he was very, very hurt about being fired from Gone with the Wind, just shamed by it. Mm -hmm. Because everyone in Hollywood's going to know it's a big production Mm -hmm. and you get fired. Uh, He was upset about the Sylvia Scarlett situation before that um, and realized that that experiment just failed. And it also was butchered in editing because he didn't retain. He's not one of those people that insisted on the rights to absolutely everything. Mm. As he went, he'd occasionally say, if I can't get this performer, I don't want to do it. But he rarely said flat out no without a good reason. Uh, he he turned down the first directing the first uh, A Star Is Born in 1937, Janet Gaynor. He he turned that down because he had done What Price Hollywood in 32, and they were so similar that he wanted a different challenge. And when he got Judy Garland to when she wanted to do it, she and her producer husband wanted to do that film Mm. then that was an exciting project because she's another one of those difficult actresses and he felt that the editing had destroyed his pretty much singular masterpiece he felt that film was his masterpiece Mm. and the editing on it included adding scenes without him there Mm. that people say were directed like either by the dance director or by others assistant directors Mm. And he felt they had ruined his film, so he had a lot of those, angers and frustrations. But he still, you know, he never quit and just said, "Well, fine, I'm moving to another country," Mm -hmm. or "Fine, I'm not going to work here anymore." Uh, The other kind of evidence for protecting himself that way is when there were the uh, when there were the HUAC hearings, the House Un-American Activities Committees in '47 Mm -hmm. and then in '52, precursors to the Red Scare. Mm -hmm. where the government, Congress, said we have the right to censor films and to change Hollywood and to put up laws and things. And they interviewed these people, and they particularly felt that Hollywood was a bastion of sex and violence and uh, was Mm pro-communist. And so that's the space where you had to go in and say whether you'd ever been a communist and name names and things. And Court did everything he could to avoid having to testify, to avoid doing anything controversial. Mm-hmm. So, for example, he was happy to go and visit um, Ingrid Bergman uh, when she got together with Roberto Rossellini after he had left his wife, the actress Anna Magnani, who was also in a Cuccur film. Later, he was he was fine with seeing her, uh, even though she had committed this faux pas. But when he was there, he, when he was in England seeing her, he did not see. His longtime writing partner, David Ogden Stewart. He wouldn't go visit him because he was there. He was blacklisted. Yeah. As soon as Cukor knew he was blacklisted, he just hid from people. So there was a fearful part of him. Um, uh, there's a Patrick McGilligan biography called A Double Life that talks about his, which is another name of a Corps film, but talks about this double life he lived where. Uh, He hid certain things and he showed others. He talks about it mostly in terms of his homosexuality. um, But I would say he tried very hard to be Mm depoliticized. And there's a cost to that. You know, it's not like he didn't deal with some things. I mean, doing a film about the partition of India is a powerful picture. But the studio didn't like any of the politics and added a voiceover that he hated to it by Stuart Granger, who had been insulting and horrible to him, so that it shifted the picture in which the main female character kind of symbolizes this torn India. She's of mixed race or half-caste, as they called it then, Mm. of Indian and and British, but played by American actress Ava Gardner. Mm. And he... It was her film to show how she kind of symbolizes torn country, and they kind of threw the film to him in some ways and ruined some of the risks that he took in the film or that he felt were p- political. And so he just, I don't know, he tried in bits and pieces, but I find that you have to get to the gender politics or class issues or ethnicity hmm. through more subtle elements of the of the films than, yeah. than overtly.
0: Did Did he ever date women to try to hide his homosexuality or
1: not that I know of Mm. at all. Uh, he had female friends that were close to him and he was very close to his sister, Mm -hmm. but, um, he, uh, no, he did not. He didn't publicly date anyone Mm -hmm. for most of his life that I know of. And then there was a big controversy late in his life. Um, where he had a man living with him that I don't really know exactly what their relationship was. Mm-hmm. May have been physically intimate, may not, but um, the family was very upset because he left a lot of his money to this guy and the family felt he was scheming. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't, you know, he didn't have a, he didn't date or marry, didn't have one of those lavender marriages where, where stars marry. Um, but he was very respectful of the people he worked with. One of the things he felt was as far as his homosexuality was that you shouldn't, you shouldn't make it visible. So you shouldn't be swishy. I mean, offensive stereotypes. You shouldn't do that pansy kind of character, Mm -hmm. but he has a pansy character in one of his early films. So people liked him. They'd say, well, he's not one of those Jews. He's not one of those kind of gay people. And, and it's sad to have to live that way. I think, um, So it certainly wasn't because I admired him as an individual that I wrote this, but that I found it's too easy to just write him off, Mm -hmm. that there are interesting things going on in his films. You know, there's a film like The Women in 39 um, that he got as kind of his consolation prize for being kicked out of Gone with of one with the wind Mm. he also advised and did some informal directing uncredited directing on wizard of oz Mm. but um the women has uh, over a hundred women in it and no men Mm. uh and he was seen as the perfect director to direct all these women particularly as you had big stars of the day like norma Shearer and joan crawford who were kind of at at each other's throats one playing the good woman the good wife and the other playing the home wrecker um, and managing them all and getting them to work well together and stuff was uh, a thing he did.
0: Do you think um, so? The whole idea of um, looking at the past, you know, through today's lenses, um, do you think it's unfair to judge him harshly for how you lived then? Um, or do you think he stood out as, you know, Someone who could have made change and and really didn't take any kind of risk.
1: Well, so uh, two responses. Mm -hmm. In general, I feel that people should push boundaries during their era. And I get very frustrated with, well, Gone with the Wind is the way it is. It's racist because that's how things were. Mm -hmm. So I applaud someone like Hattie McDaniel who plays Mammy. Mm -hmm. Because she said, look, my choices were I could play a maid in Hollywood films or I could be a maid. Mm -hmm. So I played a maid. Mm -hmm. So an awareness that we don't see them as these naive people who had no other choices. Butterfly McQueen, who plays, um, who's the one, uh, I don't know nothing about birth and no babies, Miss Scarlet, and has that fluttery voice. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, those are the roles they could get. Uh, And Cucor directed her. She had a bit part in... Mm -hmm. The women, and there aren't women of color in that film, but Butterfly McQueen's little part stands out to me because she is Joan Crawford's character, the working class perfume counter girl. She's her maid, just as the way she would be a maid to the rich women of the Mm store. And Joan Crawford's like, you go home to my house and you make a dinner so I can have my married boyfriend over and i'm going to tell him i cooked it and she's like well you need to give me more money and she says no you're lucky you're getting that and so you see this person who's working at the store but can't be in the front counter and then has to do work after work to make extra money and is still exploited so it's not that they're invisible i mean he didn't write that character but it's not that they're entirely invisible but i can say that there were issues he addressed and there were issues he didn't he did admire the wealthy who were predominantly white in hollywood Mm -hmm. and lived in hollywood he lived there as a man who could you know he was heavy when he was young and he didn't like that particularly his heavy phase when he was fat and didn't like the way he looked in pictures he had very full lips and very tightly curled what they called kinky black hair back then. Mm-hmm. So he had a very kind of Jewish look to him. And there he is among all these stars. So I know he has these kind of insecurities that you can see coming out in the way he works with other people. So living vicariously, and he's not going to live vicariously through working class black people, mm-hmm. for example. Um, and he didn't do Westerns. He did that one comedy musically kind of Western. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's not dealing with Native Americans. Uh, he did not... He, he did a few films that you can link with film noir, and I have a whole chapter on how you can link some of his films with film noir in the 40s, mm. um, because it was in the air at the time in large part. Uh, but they're the kind of ones that a lot of the European directors did, so you have uh, female-centered Noir, which more the European directors were doing, yeah. uh, no hard-boiled detectives or things like that. And thus, you know, he's not doing what some of the others are doing, where you have some noirs that take place in Mexico and you have Mexican characters that can either, like in Border Incident, which is directed by a Jewish emigre director, that have Mexican and Mexican-American characters or have a lead like Ricardo Montalban in them. And so he didn't do those kinds of films. He didn't do crime pictures and didn't like working with violence. Um, but at the same rate, you know, it's that's, that's the people he liked to work with. What does it mean when you most admire the British and the Swedes? Hmm. You know, to compare it to something contemporary, and I apologize for bringing the politics into it, but it you know it reminds me of President Trump saying what countries he wants immigrants from. Mm -hmm. and doesn't want immigrants from. Um, And so I do think that I I admire more people who do take those risks. Mm -hmm. I do think Cukor took some risk, and I think being a gay director at that time, you know, you can see the negative examples, like James Whale, Mm -hmm. who directed the amazing original Frankenstein, and the even more amazing Bride of Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. but found himself ousted, you know, found himself unable to get films, and that Cukor wanted to direct, so he wasn't going to push major boundaries. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, he did push boundaries in terms of some in terms of gender and and sexual orientation. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Dr. Elise Ray Halford, author of What Price Hollywood? You can find more information on her work at dot com. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my Facebook page, Full Contact Nerd, to find links to interesting, nerd-focused videos created by others. Please go to my Twitter page, at Full Contact Nerd, for links to nerd news and academic articles. Please check out my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, for cosplay and convention photos. Please check out my YouTube channel, Full Contact Nerd, for interview videos I've made. You can also sign up for my newsletter at chrisalvarez.com and fullcontactnerd.com. In the newsletter, I post video and news links, as well as regular updates on new nerd-friendly books being published. Remember, my name Chris does not have an H. C-R-I-S. If you're interested in other kinds of history, such as military history or film, TV, books, and comic books history, including science fiction, fantasy, and horror themes, or the history of outer space exploration, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. So just just to um, play devil's advocate, just to pull on this thread a little more. Go um, for it. So... So you did, so you mentioned the black actresses who basically said, well, I have to do what I need to do to survive, yet Kukor, are, are you holding Kukor to maybe a higher standard, or might he be able to say, you know, I had to do what I had to do to survive as a gay Jewish person in Hollywood?
1: Right. So, I mean, that's a fair question. I would say it hinges on the issue of power. Mm-hmm. Once he was a very successful director, he did have enough power you know, like he made that film Sylvia Scarlet in 1935, mm-hmm. where you've got Katherine Hepburn with her haircut looking like a teenage boy. Mm-hmm. That was a heck of a risk to take. And he just wanted to have fun with that film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's I, I talk about it a lot in the book because her character is very queer and trans in interesting ways in terms of the way the whole film plays with gender mm-hmm. and even in romance by the end of the film when she's being a woman again she's still wearing a very gender ambiguous outfit at the end of the film mm-hmm. um and so i do think you know i don't want to downplay that he did take some real risks mm-hmm. um and he worked with actresses like judy garland who had been dealt a really rough hand as an adult i mean she was really missed Treated, and so in—I mean, she had to wear a metal bone in the back of dresses for her spine because she had scoliosis. She was told to not move her arms much, which is what in part gave her 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 singing its power. This movement that she does, she's bound completely trussed up in *Wizard of Oz* because she's got breasts and she's playing this pre-adolescent character, uh, and she wasn't given a lot of roles that she would really have liked to have had mm. whereas when she does stars born there are whole scenes about prosthetics and makeup and dresses and how an actress gets refashioned that become very political in that film as far as race is concerned he would have really had to push boundaries and not very many directors did mm. even those that we consider you know just superb outstanding directors mm-hmm. didn't necessarily want to, I mean, could have been racist themselves. I don't. I don't.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, you know, I can't speak of of too many directors, but I know that if you're going to call him a little homosexual Jew, can ima- I can only imagine what you're going to call hmm. people of color. Right. Uh, so, I think it's fair to say he was somewhat political. He was fearful of losing his position, but he also. So he used his power in some ways to do really interesting things. I mean, to start Katharine Hepburn's career, to keep Judy Holliday working. Uh, She had a lot of trouble with keeping her weight to what Hollywood found acceptable. Hmm. Uh, Meryl Monroe was hard to just get to show up to the set. And he worked with these actresses and helped them find success or continue their success, Mm -hmm. which I think is wonderful. And I do think he cared a great deal about Judy Holliday, who died Very young of breast cancer, Mm. Uh, but so it's not fair to hold him to a standard that few others are living up to. Mm. It's just a little frustrating. It's a little. He got a lot of the privilege he got of working with these incredible women that Hollywood just deemed difficult Mm. and made difficult, uh, made them difficult to work with. You know, that's that's an incredible privilege he had, Uh, and he showcased them well. Any time he worked with them. Hmm. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, I still <laughs> am frustrated by, oh, I, it's a frustration with Hollywood more than QCOR. How about that?
0: Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So uh, let me turn to the um, to how you did the research for the book. What What did he use to um, get information on him?
1: Okay, there are a bunch of biographies, right? So you start, I mean, I started with the films. Mm-hmm. I watched I should say the biographies come in terms of uh, book research, but I started by the films that I knew well mm-hmm. and then said, what else did he direct? Oh, my gosh. He directed Gaslight, which is the Ingrid Bergman film that where the term gaslighting comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know what that term to gaslight a woman to make her think she's crazy? Mm-hmm. Right. To get power over her, to kill her, to whatever. So that's his people think. Um, what's his name made it? They think. uh Hitchcock made it, Mm -hmm. but he didn't. Cucor made it, and it was a remake. There was a British film in 1940, and the studio hid all the copies of the 40 film so it wouldn't be shown uh, when he was making the 1944 version, but it's an... Ornate, elaborate, beautiful film. Uh, it's just well done, and he gave uh, Angela Lansbury her first role in that as the saucy maid. Mm. Uh, so that one's definitely worth seeing. So I watched that, and I said, "Oh, I didn't realize that was Cucar." So first, I had my, "Oh my gosh, he's directed a bunch of films I've seen," and then it was he directed Gene Kelly's last musical, and finding those films. That were less known to me, and also uh, some of the more noirish films, the film "A Woman's Face" with Joan Crawford as a woman with a scar on her face who's a criminal, mm-hmm. and by removing the scar, she becomes a real woman and can marry. It's <laughs> sickening, but uh, the the noirish part of it is really compelling, and that's also a remake. That's a remake of a Swedish film with Ingrid Bergman mm-hmm. that I like even better. And you know, Cukor gave it the Hollywood treatment, but also gave Joan Crawford, this opportunity to do a film where she's not just playing kind of an overblown stereotype melodrama figure that she did, you know, uh, using her star image. And he believes that his film is what gave her her Academy Award and Mildred Pierce a few years later. Mm-hmm. In any event, so I started watching these and realizing how many films there were. Uh, and I started grouping them into issues that I thought were going on. In various films so it was finding old vhs's uh finding some of them online um almost none of his films are in the public domain i'm not sure any of them are so they're very hard you can't find them on youtube or things like that Hmm. so when i've done research into film noir which is a book i'm working on now um the the noir book you can find a lot of noir online because it's public domain and people put it up. But QCOR films get taken down if you put them up on YouTube. Mm. So after I've watched a bunch of films and kind of started thinking about issues that are going on and, and grouping them, then I start reading what other scholars have written about QCOR. Mm. So I start reading the multiple biographies. Uh the book there are there's a book of interviews with QCOR. And there are filmographies where they just say a few pages about each film or his main films. And so I'm reading and reading and seeing what other people have said and also what they haven't said so that I know I have an original contribution to make. Cucor is, I would say, understudied. There aren't as many scholarly articles and books on Cucor as there perhaps could be Mm -hmm. or should be. Uh, He's not considered a great director. So there's a billion books and articles on Hitchcock or I'm trying to think of other people. Uh, and there are uh, certain directors got rediscovered in the 80s with queer studies. So Dorothy Arsner which was the studio system's only lesbian director, um, there are several books on her and there are articles on her films. Uh, and Cukor, at the same time, started being studied more for his queerness, mm-hmm. you know, do you study him for the fact that he was able to be such a success as a gay man, or do you study him as a pawn of the studio system that made the films they told him to make and hurt gay people thereby by depicting stereotypes or making everything so straight on the surface. Um, so biographies and books and articles, and then, you know, whatever I could find, uh, Fortunately, or unfortunately, I got a little scared about this. In 2015, when I was kind of, um, because it takes a while for these things to go in stages, but in 2015, when I was drafting the full manuscript, a book came out on QCor that has individual chapters and covers all of his films in through a focus on different topics related to q Corps. Uh, so it may be about his use of the long take, or it may be about his uh, films that weren't successful in studying all of them together, things like that, mm-hmm. and that, Palmer and Pomerantz put that book out, and they put it out through Edinburgh University Press, mm-hmm. which is where I was had talked to, uh, an editor there and was thinking about putting my book through. And they said, you know, we did this, we can't really do two books in a row. Um, and that book helped me to see a few new avenues, but yeah. it still wasn't what I was doing, which is this narrowed focus mm-hmm. on some of his incursions and subversions and play with gender, queerness, mm-hmm. uh, homosexuality, desire Stereotypes, Mm -hmm. ways of seeing, all those kinds of things. So I started just cobbling ideas and chapters together. I had the two that had already been published. And then um, while working on it, I also published an article on that film, A Double Life, Mm -hmm. with Ronald Coleman, where he plays Othello. And I was teaching a unit in my class. I was teaching, uh, I teach courses on like, uh, including literature and film and pop culture. And I had them reading Othello and then watching different versions of the film, hmm. like you can watch s- filmed versions of Othello, stage plays, but you can also, there's the film O, mm-hmm. that takes it into the contemporary area with teens, and then there's this film from 1947, in which playing Othello gets to his brain and he becomes insane and murders <laughs> people, I and mean, it's just a real cheese. There's not even any good reason. So that's another place in which one could critique the fact that, you know, he didn't write the screenplay, but there was no discussion really of if you play a black man on stage, you become insane and kill people. Um, you know, and Othello is a very complex and specific character, you mm-hmm. know, that was really never played originally by a black man. Shakespeare never envisioned the Moor Othello as black because he wouldn't have been on the Elizabethan stage, mm. uh, but there was there were incursions going on at the time of visiting royalty from African nations and things like that. So the Queen had met Moors, and and so Shakespeare was taking advantage of it. But you know, at least give the guy a reason. There's a film it's partly based on, The Brighton Strangler, uh, in which the guy who goes crazy, the actor who goes crazy, goes crazy when he's hit by. a a falling I think it's a falling building during the London Blitz and then he thinks he's a strangler from the play he's been in as a as a a murderer Mm -hmm. he's playing a serial killer and he gets hit on the head and thinks he's at least you got a hit on the head (laughs) and with this one it's just I'm playing Othello I must now kill my wife you know Um, and that's where he gave Shelley Winters her first role um, in that film Mm -hmm. But anyway, so as the more I'm doing this stuff, whether it's teaching or watching this film with my friends, we go on a semi, you know, we go on an occasional trip to London and we always bring that QCOR film holiday with us Mm -hmm. and watch it on the plane together and those kinds of things. (laughs) And so it built some chapters. The hard part was building enough of these case studies of three or four films together Mm -hmm. and coming up with ideas that aren't just, oh, look, there's a young boy in every one of these films, right? So I had to come up with some themes and issues that I found meaningful and that represented a certain number of Q course films. And I found that in things like whether it's thematic, like um, topical female friendships and male alcoholics who come to a bad end versus male alcoholics in comedies who don't. Hmm. <laughs> or... Whether it's exploring film noir themes and images or representations of Jewishness in the characters that that are often indirect. He did not make any films about actual Jewish characters Hmm. that are named as such. Uh. But there are these New York City characters Mm -hmm. um, who I think in like Born Yesterday that signify kind of New York Jewishness or that kind of thing. Hmm. Does that help answer the question?
0: Yeah. How, How many films did he direct?
1: So he directed just under, I think, 50 films Hmm. in as many years because he directed so many in the 30s and 40s that by the time he got to doing fewer films in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and then that film in 81, Mm -hmm. he didn't have to do one a year. And he wasn't given one a year, but uh, he also directed in the 70s, he directed Catherine Hepburn again and finally got to direct Laurence Olivier in a TV movie that won all kinds of awards. Hmm. that was kind of a throwback. It took place in the early 20th century, and it was about a marital uh, a breach of promise suit. An older woman uh, is trying to get out of a breach of promise suit with a young man that's trying to steal all her stuff. And what's his name? Um, Laurence Levy is the barrister, uh. and it's about their relationship and stuff. And so it's, it's sweet. It's mm-hmm. very sweet and nostalgic. Mm-hmm. The book discusses 25 of the films, either in-depth, or briefly, but there are certainly a bunch that I don't talk about. So I talk about all the most famous ones, mm-hmm. but there are bizarre films. Like he did a film called The Bluebird in the 70s that has Elizabeth Taylor in it, among others. Uh, and I believe that's the one that has Luke Gossett maybe in it. And it was this bizarre children's fairy tale musical mess, co co-produced in russia and it's just i don't know it's dreadful and so some of them you know i just didn't have much to say about but a lot of them you know like in the chapter on women's friendship i go from his earliest films with women's friendship in them say something like the women in 39 Mm -hmm. to rich and famous in 1981 with jacqueline Bissett and candace bergman and talk about some themes that come through all of his fiction, all of his films. Mm-hmm. Or I talk about a number of Catherine Hepburn films that he collaborated with her on and how he helped her to get rid of her box office poison label or things like that. Mm-hmm. So I was thrilled that the publisher enjoyed that diversity because it's not a book that you start at the beginning and and go to the end and get from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. Mm-hmm. It wanders from kind of images of white female and white maleness to themes and theories of gender as, as performance and the drag issues and queer, mu- queering uh, queered issues in the musical to those issues that actually deal with ethnicity, race, and nation. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think this, this question popped to my mind, is it possible he might've, um, Not been gay, but rather identified as a woman?
1: I don't... You'd have to really project and say Hmm. his direction of all of these women was vicarious desire to live as slash through them. Hmm. And it's possible to argue... Just reading all the interviews with him and what he says about himself, plus the biographies, Hmm. I think it's more likely that he wanted to live vicariously through actors Hmm. and worked best with women in a homophobic Hollywood Mm -hmm. than that he was actually trans. There's no depictions or discussions of him. Like he, he has his, he has an art director who does all the color schemes and designs and he has people who do the costumes and gowns and he does not involve himself in that kind of thing Mm -hmm. that might suggest an attraction to things feminine. I definitely read him much more as a man who was physically attracted to other men and lived in a culture and a Hollywood space and grew up during an era in which an open relationship just was not an option. And he decided that he would submerge that part of himself into his work so that he could stay working and living in the lifestyle to which he'd become accustomed Mm -hmm.
0: and i ask that because and i haven't done much reading or research in this but it seems like as difficult as it is to be homosexual you know in the past it's as far as being trans that's almost like uh, not exist like i'm sure it existed but that isn't even touched you know, in Right. So, or, or I mean, that,
1: the only way that's talked about is as a freak show. And I think the earliest films that deal with it with any tact at all are probably in the 50s. Hmm. Um, and then, obviously, much more recently, if you want to talk about truly just displaying trans characters being trans as opposed to films about transition. Right. But, you know, I mean, I still remember, like, whatever it was, 70s and 80s talk shows saying, you know, a man trapped inside a woman's body. And we had all kinds of pathologizing language. Mm-hmm. So if there was any of that in Q-Corp, he it did not come out in any of his mannerisms or his look mm-hmm. or the way he talked about himself. He would have considered that much worse than being gay in the sense of how society would treat him and... You know, like I said, it was very important for him for him not to seem gay in quotes to other people mm-hmm. by manifesting any kind of the way femininity was linked with homosexuality and still is in in some ways mm-hmm. today um, with some. You know, it's not entirely a myth, but it's certainly an exaggerated stereotype. So, if so, I haven't heard anybody write, I haven't seen anyone write about it mm-hmm. or discuss it in those terms. Yeah. It's... Uh, yeah, and certainly there were bisexual directors and things where or actors where they just didn't discuss it. They just did their thing, had their lavender marriage or didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was most important is he wasn't hyper masculine, but he, I think he substituted class ambitions for gender in some ways that he wanted to be one of the guys, but and tell you know off color jokes, but he also. Did not want anyone to be able to call him slurs for being homosexual because he was visibly linked with homosexuality?
0: Mm-hmm. What did you find that was most surprising in your research
1: well this is this is a superficial one I'll start with, and I'll try and think of something deeper. Um, I think superficially, the most surprising thing is what I found at the end, which is uh, you know toward the end of my research uh, it was when I was reading biographies, but I didn't link it all up then. Cukor and I both have a father named Victor. Mm-hmm. His mother is Helen and mine is Helene. And his sister mm-hmm. is Elsie and I'm Elise. <laughs> and I'm like, it must be meant to be that I write this book. <laughs> okay, so that was the most surprising thing on an exceedingly superficial level. That, that his parents were Victor and, Hel- Victor and Helen and mine were Victor and Helene is just wild to me. And that mm-hmm. his sister is Elisa. I'm sorry, Elsie. Um, surprising. Well, and this is maybe, I'm not trying to be evasive. Uh, in hard. the most general terms, that I can actually find enough to write a book about Q-Core and gender surprised me because I had simply enjoyed some of his films. And sometimes it was despite things going on in them. So mm. in Holiday, which is one of my favorite Q-core films, because there's so much interesting to say about it, uh, In that film, there's a point where several of the characters are upstairs in a playroom in this big brownstone uh, that these wealthy people own, and they are being down to earth. And one of the ways in which they be down to earth is the brother picks up a banjo and starts playing it, and they're talking about Cary Grant's character's working class background, and they want to make him sound more upper class so that the family will approve of him marrying kate hepburn's sister in the mm-hmm. film mm-hmm. and they go well wasn't there a judge case somewhere you know on the plantation Banjo banjos are strumming hidey ho massa and like that's how they sound in mm-hmm. doing the film and i'm like oh, why didn't they rewrite that line that line was <laughs> written in the 20s and it was the film came out in 38 yeah. and yet it's still like oh I, how could you not notice it so mm-hmm. The the pleasure and the pain of Cucor was always relevant to me, but Mm. I didn't realize like the guy didn't like musicals, but directed four of them and four of his films really can be linked with film noir. And I had no idea. So I think a lot of it, how many guys in his films are alcoholics when that was not a big deal to Mm. Cucor? He had parties. He was not a drinker. Uh, One biographer calls him a teetotaler and another said he was a social drinker. But he has multiple films with alcoholic characters who either, if they're in a romantic comedy, they just magically get over it. And if they're in a drama, I mean, John Barrymore's character is a vicious alcoholic in the early film um, Dinner at Eight. And he commits suicide because he can't make the transition as an actor from his big role on the stage um to sound films because he's aging and nobody wants to work with him and they consider him a ham and he's basically playing himself uh and so i i think it was those kinds of things lots of little things that i really didn't know Hmm. uh about him more than one big thing Mm -hmm. that 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 uh really shocked me
0: okay that's interesting was there anything in the research that had a big emotional impact on you, either positively or negatively?
1: The most positive thing was—I mean, first of all, it's seeing the book. I've just gotten my copies a couple of weeks ago, and it's mm-hmm. seeing it in print makes me really happy. Mm-hmm. I have edited several books. <laughs> my, the, my first edited book was on um, was the first scholarly published collection on Star Trek. Called enterprise zones that came out in 96 and I was really excited for that because I was a new scholar and I had just finished my PhD and I had co-edited the book with people I went to graduate school with and then I did um two I've done two of them on kind of super and fantasy women in television and popular culture mm-hmm. and so This book validates a switch that I've made because my university is large enough and my department is large enough to allow me to follow my passions that I've moved from literature to popular culture and from science fiction to diverse genres to classic Hollywood, where I'm really very I'm very excited about the things that I've learned about classic Hollywood. I love learning new things. I'm a very I move from thing to thing. I went for, you know, um, some time into I was studying manga and anime. I just kind of go where I'm led and where I feel like I can be productive and so putting this book together and being able to just sit and talk with you conversationally Mm -hmm. for an hour about this stuff is very exciting to me and very fun. Um, because there's the scholar in me, and there's also the pop culture fan in me, and there's the nerd in me, Mm -hmm. and all of those things kind of come together here in that the book is a scholarly book published by an academic press. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, I made sure it had a lot of photos in it. I went on eBay, and I searched for the best original publicity photos I could buy Mm -hmm. so that we could legally include them in the book. I won't tell you how much I ended up paying, but (laughs) for one of them, uh, less than a hundred I'll say for this one was um, an original photo from Qcor's collection. Mm. That that was his last photo that he had kept in his collection of the film Sylvia Scarlet with him behind the camera and Catherine Hepburn looking on behind the camera. And it's just a gorgeous picture. And so I kind of own that little piece of history. I know very I guess that's very nerdy. Um, <laughs> Kinda, but, but but pulling all that together was just a real pleasure for me. It was just fun looking through eBay and looking for those photos. Uh, and I feel very proud of having done it and mm. having people appreciate it. The guy that did the cover art did a really interesting cover that's linked with a feminist mm. um, artist's perspective rather than just slapping a picture of Qcore on the cover. So just that whole project made me feel really good.
0: Hmm. So I'm the- I'm gonna ask a question. I actually skipped because I didn't think there would be a you wouldn't have much to say about it but but maybe there is. Um, was there a particular question that you really wanted to get an answer for that you couldn't um that you couldn't get to or maybe you finally did, but uh, it just took a a lot more effort than you expected.
1: So you're asking, was there a question I had about Q or his films?
0: Yes, as you that did I found research.
1: difficult to get to.
0: Yes, a question you found very difficult to answer that maybe took more research. I than guess we've aspects.
1: discussed it. Mm-hmm. I guess we've discussed it most. You know, it was suggested to me, go to the Margaret Herrick Library at UCLA and dig up all the personal letters QCOR wrote. And I found myself pulling away from that because I didn't want QCOR's answers. So, for example, one of the uh. big questions about QCOR is, can you call him an Ocher? Mm -hmm. Can you call him a singular artist in control of all of his pictures? Cukor said no, but maybe he's being coy, and -hmm. he wants someone else to call him that. And he also says no to many readings of his films. I've noticed in his interviews, they say, well, what about this? And he goes, no, I wasn't doing that. And so (laughs) the man wasn't particularly interested in other people's interpretations of his work, although sometimes he'll say, really, you saw that? Well, that's fascinating. Uh, And so I really was digging into that in one of the early... Versions of the book had an introduction that focused on that question of Mm. should we call him an auteur Mm. rather than just the gender thing. And I'm going to look at these films in order to answer that question. And so it's kind of an which was I discovered that that's not a particularly interesting question, Mm. Um, particularly for QCOR. Maybe an interesting question to me for other people. I've started working on some films by Billy Wilder, and it's a much more interesting question for him because he did write and he did direct and he did produce. Mm. So I know that I have that opposite answer to that question, which was there was a big question, and the more I read, the more I decided I wasn't interested in that question.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. It brings to mind, I've always argued that um, that it it's almost unimportant what the creator is trying to create and tells you what the creator has done um, as much as it yes. is how does the, the viewer interpret it.
1: I I completely agree, and we have to see critics as viewers. Mm -hmm. So my book is my view as a critic Mm -hmm. and a creator, as well as a receiver of these films, and people can agree or disagree. Uh, It was very nice to see the reader reviews of the book that got that, Mm -hmm. that kind of said, well, I don't necessarily agree with this reading, that this character is particularly representative of a type of Jewish masculinity that focuses on humility scholarship and honor but can be sexualized i don't agree that that character can be read that way Uh, i don't have any problems with that Mm -hmm. Um, the things that were least helpful to me were things like reviewers just saying you can't put these two critics or theorists in the same book because this one's talking about images of women and this one's talking about the male gaze and how women are envisioned on screen and i said no I want to be eclectic and say, what happens if you take all kinds of lenses mm-hmm. to QCOR? Yeah. What do you get?
0: Yeah. No, but I think I've
1: lost the train of your question.
0: No, no, no. That's I no, I think you're still there. <laughs> you're still on there. So we have talked about all the things you want the book to say and do, but um I guess in, in a nutshell, what do you hope the book will do for readers?
1: Isn't it funny? I focus so much on My determination at a kind of advanced point in my career at a university that requires a great deal of teaching, uh, they don't give us, like, we don't get sabbatical, Mm -hmm. where you just get a year off to work on your research. Uh, We have a competitive sabbatical where you can get a grant, but there are very few of them and they're difficult to get, uh, and only one every seven years. So that, unlike some scholars who are teaching one or two classes and working on the research, I'm teaching three, or for most of my career, four classes. Mm -hmm and so you have to work in the time to do your research uh and there have been times um i had uh, 10 years ago i had breast cancer and Mm. i when i was doing chemo i had no brain Mm. and that's one of the reasons i got into studying anime i learned how to do graphic art uh digital art because i had no brain to write at that time but art works in a very different part of your brain so i i enjoyed myself then even as i you know dealt with fear Mm -hmm. of my life and stuff but one of the things cancer gives you the silver lining is you stop sweating the small stuff if you're lucky because hmm. you didn't die right. <laughs> and I'm fine now. Yeah, um, but but uh, I th- I've thought mostly about my desire to publish a book mm-hmm. and I've had a very hard time figuring it out. I'm not like my colleagues who go, Shakespeare is my thing, right, or I am. Virginia Woolf, you know? (laughs) I'm going to write only about... I've never felt that way. Mm -hmm. I did the work on Octavia Butler, but I have very mixed feelings about her work. I did this on QCOR. Very mixed feelings about her work. There's nobody... There are authors that I just flat out admire, and there are filmmakers. But I don't know. Are there any filmmakers I just adore every single thing they did? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking it through. But um, for readers of the book, I hope they get pleasure out of its combination of being written in an academic for academics, but in language and explaining concepts in ways that are relatively easy to follow, Mm -hmm. that you can be a fan of Hollywood film, classic Hollywood, and enjoy the book, Mm -hmm. as well as you can be a scholar and say, what have I not seen in this guy's work that might be useful to me? And obviously, people who love classic Hollywood or scholars who like classic Hollywood um, might be interested in it because it does take this different angle. The other thing is generally, I hope it inspires writers mm. because I went through a long writing process, conceptualization of the book process, and then I worked with several publishers before I found the one. Mm. Like I said, the Edinburgh University Press was my go-to, and because they published that other book right when I was pitching my full manuscript, when I'd finally gotten it into where I thought it was needed to be, They couldn't publish it. Uh, And I went to a second press and got such mixed responses. Um, And I won't name the press, but suffice it to say, they gave it to people who don't like queer studies or don't really like academic prose or don't (laughs) like feminism. And those aren't the people to give the book to, because that's not the audience. If you hate feminism, you don't want to read the book, probably. But with, with the University Press of Kentucky, from the very moment I wrote a query note, just an initial email saying, here's what I got. What do you think? The editor, Andine Dotson, was like, loving it loving it let me see more and then she was very honest with me and said look we need more books and engage with queer studies in film and this is perfect and you're doing this and you're doing that and um the people i worked with there were good to work with and the reviews they went straight to the top people in the field because i found out who at least one of the reviewers was and then another of the reviewers kind of outed himself to me Mm -hmm. and just said hey i was one of your reviewers and i'm uh, i'm writing a blurb for the back of your book Mm -hmm. and they gave me feedback, one of them extensively and one of them minorly, but they both said, yes, publish this, we love it. And I didn't get any of that, well, I've never been a fan of queer studies, it's too political for me. <laughs> so if you start it that way, you've picked the wrong person. Yeah. Um, and you do get paid to review other people's manuscripts. Mm-hmm. So the idea of paying people to say, I'm a terrible audience for this book, so here are my problems with it. Uh, It's unfortunate, Mm -hmm. but I guess I would say that if you have lots of writers listening to the podcast, Mm -hmm. that idea that you have to draft and redraft, think and rethink, have patience with yourself, and the best advice I ever got was from a fellow graduate student when I was at the University of Iowa in the late 80s, early 90s, and he said, you're looking for a home for your work you need to be as critical as they are, meaning not negatively critical, but you need to analyze who are you sharing your pearls with, you know? Mm-hmm. Are they swine that you're sharing <laughs> pearls before swine? <laughs> are you sharing it with people that you think will appreciate it? And the responses you get will tell you what you've got um, and, and, and where to go. And so I feel like I found the really good home for the book, and that means a lot. Mm-hmm. to me in seeing it come out I do hope it comes out in a cheaper paperback edition because a $40 hardback is not, the average person's not going to buy that mm-hmm. um, I'm hoping the Kindle and the paperback will be less expensive when it comes out but it's mm-hmm. these wonderful university hardbacks where there's not paper over it but the images are printed right on the cover mm-hmm. and I love those they're yeah. they're a little bit heavy weight but they're solid and they look nice and like I said ultimately I'm proud of myself for having finished it and I hope other people just enjoy the reading experience and go on the ride with me oh wow I do see what you see here yeah well I also see this but that's okay you can see that
0: yeah you know that is cool so that's my story Mm -hmm. you, you did mention your your current or future writing project um briefly what what is it again you So
1: there are two things I'm doing. One are articles, and that's mostly what I've done before this, except for the books that I've edited. Um, and the articles are on films by Billy Wilder, and particularly I'm looking at the fact that he was another Jewish, I'm Jewish, and he's, and that's one of the reasons I write this stuff. I'm Jewish-American. It's an ethnicity more than a religion to me, and Hollywood is full of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm interested in Billy Wilder, who is a Jewish emigre who flees... He's from Vienna, but he was working in the Weimar Cinema in silent film. Mm-hmm. And he flees when Hitler comes to power, knowing that neither Germany nor Austria are going to be beyond his grasp. And his mother and his grandmother stay there and are killed, or murdered in Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And I think it affected a lot of his films. Now, a lot of people have already written about that. So my goal is in reading his stuff. I have to read a lot more before I say a word about anything, because there's a lot more writing about Billy Wilder. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's famous for being the director and sometimes writer, producer of films like Double Indemnity, Some Like It Hot, Sunset Boulevard, mm-hmm. The Apartment. Sure. And I'm looking at some of his films that have been less studied, like Ace in the Hole, which is a stars Kirk Douglas, also Jewish uh, from immigrant parents, grew up in the Lower East Side of New York, mm. and it's about this ruthless newspaperman, uh, and Billy Wilder had been newspaperman in his youth, um, who just takes advantage of a situation where a man is trapped in a cave in New Mexico, and makes a story out of it that's basically lethal, that it just destroys everyone it comes into contact with, including the guy himself, mm. including the uh, editor himself, and I'm looking at issues of race, as well as Jewishness and Holocaust survivor guilt, in the film. And that one's just been accepted for publication in a journal. And I'm working on another one for a book that I'm co-editing that is on what we're calling liminal noir. So I've done a lot of reading and teaching, more teaching about film noir. Like I said, there's a little chapter in the Cukor book that deals with noir. Um, But I've taught it. I teach a course on film noir at Middle Tennessee State University. And I started saying, you know, I need to publish. As I'm showing these things, I'm learning about them. So I've seen I also did, I used to do a, um, what's called a, a live tweet or a Twitter riff sessions where every Sunday night, 10 to 20 of us, people I don't know, would get together on Twitter, pick a hashtag, and the hashtag was mm-hmm. B-Noir Detour, and they're still going. I had to step back, but they're still going, mm-hmm. and they show a film every Sunday, and you tweet, you live tweet your comments about the film, so they pick a, one that's in the public domain like on YouTube or something, and we all watch the film and comment on it. And so I have just seen, I can't even count how many noir films I've seen, but I wasn't really publishing on it. So I did the QCOR chapter, and I'm co-editing this book with my colleague Chris Weedman at MTSU that deals with what we're calling liminal noir, meaning gender-bending, so it may be a melodrama with noir elements, it may be a musical with noir elements, Mm. but that people generally don't talk about as film noir, But we are because you learn something new about the film when you look at it through the lens of film noir. So those will be films from the 30s to the 60s, from the U.S., England, Czechoslovakia, Japan, and trying to think of the other countries, Mexico and Spain, I think, are the ones that we're mostly working with right now. Um, And I'm co-editing it, so we have experts in each area or each nation, picking a specific film and doing a case study of, look, you learn a lot more about this film if you study it as noir than if you study it as a romantic comedy. Or you learn these new things Mm -hmm. about Mexican cinema or that kind of thing.
0: That's really cool. So
1: that's my, that's it's really, I really, um, I think we'll be able to get a publisher for it. Mm -hmm. And we started with some, you know, just a few people I knew, like Vince Brooke, who published a book on called, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, but he published a book on Jewish noir directors. So Jewish emigres, people that, like Billy Wilder, who came over to this country, Fred Zinneman, Kurt Ziyotmak. They came over to this country mm-hmm. and were Jewish, driven to darkness, it's called. Um, and he's... So he said he would be involved in it. And we contacted a few other names in the field and things, and we were working on our chapters. And we put out a call for papers because we wanted to enhance the, na- the international element of it. And so I'm working with a Czech scholar who just does great stuff and has really introduced me to Czech film. Hmm. So I'm really interested in that. I doubt I'll publish on it, but I've been watching a bunch of films because they had a whole new wave of Czech film that dealt with the Holocaust that is fascinating. Mm. Uh, Much different ways than Hollywood deals with it. They're not like Schindler's List or things like that. Mm. And uh, several other kind of big names in the field have hopped on board. When I've contacted them and said, "Yeah, yeah," not only do I want to write, but my co-author of this book wants to write for you. And this, like, so we've got um, one of the scholars on Ida Lupino, who is one was really the only Hollywood director of the 1950s, and she basically argues that all of Lupino's films can be studied as noir when you look at certain elements of them in terms of the underside of america and she links it to women's experiences after the war and being told to go home and uh, just great stuff so that's that's my new excitement but you know when your book comes out then it's that excitement and now the next project is this noir book that i hope will you know be done in a year Mm -hmm. or so and then out in two i hope
0: yeah now, I love noir, so that sounds really cool to me.
1: <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, we'll I'll, I'll email you and let you know what's going on with it. And uh, I can link you to some amazing articles uh, that, that have been really influential to my understanding of noir, particularly Eric Lott's article on whiteness hmm. in film noir, uh, where the darkness of noir is white characters who start hanging out with characters of color or people with ethnic backgrounds that distinguish mm-hmm. them, or even like in Double Indemnity, mm-hmm. they start like, you know, the Phyllis Dietrichson character in there. The first time you see her, she's tanning. People mm-hmm. didn't tan back then, really. Mm-hmm. And so she start, she's darkening herself. And so he looks at all those kind of symbolic elements of darkness and how they deal with race. And it's just a, it's a great article that's helped me deepen my understanding of
0: noir and what it can mean. Yeah, that makes me think of Once Upon a Time in America and other films where the characters uh, enter a dark side when they go into Chinatown and then the opium dens.
1: Perfect, absolutely. So Asia is darkness, Mexico is escape but criminality. Mm -hmm. Yes, so there's those kinds of things in it, um, as well as just literal darkness of, of characters and things. But yeah, that whole thing with oriental... Uh, the Orient as inex- in- inscrutable and dangerous, mm. you see in a bunch of, of noir films, either literally in the setting or in just things like, um, oh, what the heck? What's the one with um, Claire Trevor? Oh, 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 oh. I can't think of it. It's based on a Raymond Chandler novel, and they changed the name of the novel mm. so that people, it was from, I think it was Farewell My Lovely, and they changed the novel because that sounded like a musical. Oh, yeah. Um, but she has this jade necklace, and that symbolizes her treachery and dangerousness because it's a jade necklace, is a thing of the Orient. So mm-hmm. it's, I love that stuff. I love those details. I love going mining in films. And like you said, it doesn't matter if it's intended, it's what's going on in the culture.
0: Yeah, and Polynesia never is noir, except you have the elements where you have the, the virgin being sacrificed to the volcano god, I think, that's ah, as, yes. as dark as the Polynesian thing gets. Uh, I
1: think, what's that one? What, there's a film called The Letter with Betty Davis in it, and I want to say it has that evil, evil uh, Asian woman kind of thing in it, but mm. I can't remember where they're from, and I want to say it felt like a Polynesian trope or stereotype but Hmm. I can't remember
0: yeah interesting so where can people find you on the web you have a web page social media you want to share
1: I have a website that lists my academic achievements I've also started a covid film blog Hmm. (laughs) because I'm indoors so much and I've been watching so many films and so much TV as well mm-hmm. that I'm blogging about what interests me and also what doesn't interest me but in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also just list my publications and where you can find them and what I teach and why I teach and those kinds of things. And that's just elisehelford.com, E L Y C E H E L F O R D.com. Mm-hmm. And that also has a link to my Twitter feed, which is, I've really, my Twitter feed has has not been great. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm much more Facebooking, but that one I just use for family and friends and things. I don't talk much about my work on that one, Mm -hmm. but the Twitter account is where I talk about what I'm up to, what I'm doing.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And also
1: it has all my black lives matter stuff up there right now. I'm full of, full of fury Mm -hmm. and desperate desire to, Make the world a better place and a safe place for people to grow up and live. Mm-hmm.
0: What? which Do you want to share that Twitter handle?
1: Oh, that's just at Elise Helford.
0: Okay. All right. And it's
1: also if you go to elisehelford.com, there's a a link to email me or to go to the Twitter. Mm-hmm. Okay. I should probably do a work related Facebook, but I don't. I don't want to give Facebook any more time than I already do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Grr. Yeah. <laughs> That's all the questions I have. Do you have any um, final thoughts or words?
1: No, I just thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about the book and to keep reminding myself how much I enjoyed working on it, even through the worst of the stress, Mm -hmm. where it wasn't going to go with this press and should I just throw it away and those kind of things and talking it through. Mm -hmm. Um, It's great for me, and I hope it also gets people interested in reading the book or just more generally in how much there still is to understand if you like American history about Hollywood.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, I, I always do wonder, like, if people are, as, as we have new newer and newer generations, are people really still interested in that old-time Hollywood history or not? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, when we did the uh, B Noir Detour, and that's what it's called, mm-hmm. just the letter B and then N-O-I-R and then Detour uh, is the Twitter handle. Um, You know, it varied by week, but, you know, when when we 20 people just all sit around and watch together, Mm -hmm. um, you can tell that there's a love for this. And uh, Nashville, uh, which I live near, um, has a uh, nonprofit theater called the Bell Court. Mm -hmm. And they not only have hosted, like, Mystery Science Theater 3000, Mm -hmm. but they've even done things like show silent films. With, when they show their silent films, with new orchestras, like an electronic orchestra, or just a few musicians that come and play behind them with an all-new soundtrack to a film from 1918, or that kind of thing. And and it's, Mm -hmm. I I find that great. And they sell out, or they fill their 300-seat auditorium. Now, Mm -hmm. I would say half of those people are boomers or greatest generation people. I mean, they're older. Mm -hmm. But... When I do these kind of things, or I did a series at the public library that was an intro to noir, and we would discuss, I would introduce a concept, and then I'd show a film, and then we'd discuss it. I always filled the room, uh, and and there were couples or individuals, uh, students from the university or people in their 20s or 30s. My film noir class always fills. Mm-hmm. I'm teaching a course on films and the Holocaust in the fall, and that one has fewer students in it, hmm. and I think it's because people are afraid they're going to be traumatized, Well, understandably, yeah. but yeah. I'm very careful about what I show and how, I, how we discuss it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> huh, cool. Well, thank you for speaking with me.
1: Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome.
0: Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe. Please also rate Full Contact Nerd and review it if you can. I have many more options to nerd out on sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. You can check out my website, chrisalvarez.com. That's Chris without an H. I have 20 mini-blogs on the site covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, writing, mysteries, folklore, mythology, and many more topics. You can find my video playlists and my original videos on YouTube under Chris Alvarez. I cover sci fi short films and games, fantasy fiction, horror short films and games, video and board game design, and more. You can get interesting news on fiction and fiction studies on my Twitter page, Chris Alvarez FCN. You can find cosplay and convention photos on my Instagram page. Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. You can sign up for my newsletter on new books on my websites chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.